from Altoona to Bedford, Bloomsburg to Bradford, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled, but mail-in ballots are once again the subject of controversy and lawsuits. State Representative Seth Grove is here with the latest details. The Saudis have cut oil production and gas prices are once again going up. Anel Sheline of the Quincy Institute joins us to discuss the impact on the midterm elections and on your family budget. And the nation needs to restore its capacity for domestic energy to lessen our dependence on foreign oil and bring down prices. Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania has a Lincoln Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to State Representative Seth Grove in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. Pennsylvania's Independent Fiscal Office has issued a report forecasting near-term flat population growth in the Keystone State and a slight decline over the long term. This as the retired population grows and the working age and school age populations shrink. Southeastern Pennsylvania is projected to have a population increase, while other parts of the Commonwealth are likely to see additional population losses. There will be an economic impact to this trend. The report notes, quote, if labor force participation rates do not increase, then this trend will constrain economic and revenue growth in the future. The Allegheny Institute for Public Policy has studied the latest revenue numbers for Pennsylvania's gaming industry and found that, except for the pandemic year of 2020, revenues have increased each year since 2014 when both slots and table games became legal. The Institute found that while Internet gaming has become popular, slots continue to be the biggest revenue generator for casinos, accounting for $2.29 billion in revenue in 2021. In a recent ranking of America's governors, Pennsylvania's Tom Wolf ranked at the bottom of the pack, 44th, for his fiscal policies. The Center Square reports the Cato Institute report card on the nation's governors grades the chief executives on fiscal policy from a limited government perspective. Wolf, along with governors in other deep blue states, received the worst grades, while governors of Iowa, New Hampshire, Nebraska, and Arizona received an A for their fiscal policies. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. The Supreme Court of the United States has ruled that undated mail-in ballots should not be counted, but the Wolf administration plans to ignore the ruling and count undated ballots cast in the general election now underway. The issue, once again, is before the state courts. Here to sort through all of this is State Representative Seth Grove of York County. He is chairman of the House State Government Committee, which has jurisdiction over election-related legislation. Seth, welcome back to Lincoln Radio Journal. Seth, we have a situation here where the Supreme Court of the United States has weighed in. It's issued a ruling relative to undated ballots that are are cast by mail. Can you give us a little background on the case that went before the Supreme Court and what they decided? Undated ballots have a a fairly long history in courts in Pennsylvania. So we, we actually have to go all the way back 
to the signing of Act 77 2019, right? So Governor Wolf signed this thing into law that did the whole no-excuse ballots. And part of that law said, if you don't sign and date the affidavit on the ballot when you send it in, it is not to be counted. And that is, it, it, the, the date itself has nothing to do with dating it for, for timeliness, right? It is a legal document that says, I am, in fact, Seth Grove of Sound Mind and Body, and I'm signing this. It is me who is signing this. This is my vote. So it is your, your, your proof. You're, you're basically stating in an affidavit, like any legal document a person would do, you sign, you date, you send it in, right? If you remember the 2020 election, we had a very infamous case with Senator Brewster. His opponent was a lady by the name of Ziccarelli. She's now a district attorney, if I'm not mistaken. But during that Senate race, Allegheny County decided to count undated ballots during that 2020 Senate race. And it was just in those areas in that Senate district. So the rest of the county, they didn't count them except in that specific Senate district. And that district was, was Allegheny and Westmoreland. Westmoreland said, we're going to follow the law and not count these. That ended up going to the court. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that for this election and only this election, you'd have to count undated ballots. But here on out, you can't count undated ballots. So that was their ruling, right? I think it's over and done with, right? So city of Philadelphia decides we're going to count undated ballots when they get to their post-election board meeting. House Republican leadership and myself sent them a letter that basically said, if you count undated ballots, it's a violation of the election code and against Supreme Court ruling from 2020, we will file impeachment charges against you if you do this. The Department of State sent an email and said, you know, they're right. You can't count undated ballots. It's against the election code. So Philly recanted. They decided not to count undated ballots. All right, we're done, right? You think. 2021 general election, Lehigh County, they decide to count undated ballots. It's a judge's race. Democrat judge goes to Commonwealth Court. Commonwealth Court says, you know what? We have read this. Uh, the Supreme Court was clear. You cannot count undated ballots anymore. Democrats then appealed to Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, we ruled you can't count undated ballots, right? Thinking, okay, both, both courts. And we know how liberal the Pennsylvania Supreme Court is, right? We think we're done. No, not quite. The ACLU then jumps in, files Third Circuit Court, stating that uh, counting undated ballots violates the National Voting Rights Act. That court then says, we agree with the ACLU. It is immaterial to count that, and we're going we're gonna to basically say you have to count undated ballots. That was dropped during the 2022 primary election. I think we all remember the Oz-McCormick battle over undated ballots. McCormick took it to Commonwealth Court. Commonwealth Court did an order telling counties to count undated ballots per the Third Circuit ruling, that went to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court concurred. Well, just a few weeks ago, the Ritter case was then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court basically said, uh, went back and removed that finally said it's mute. That ruling does not count. We are not going to, basically, that is not going to be precedent moving forward. So they eviscerated, it doesn't exist, that third court ruling saying you have to count undated ballots. So that's the U.S. Supreme Court stating, we're going back to state law. That that ruling doesn't count. So, okay, you think we're done, right? No. <laughs> yeah. now, we, now we have, right, the Department of State coming in, thinking, okay, we're, we're done. 
we're going to go back to not counting undated ballots per the law, right? It all starts with the law is very clear on this. Secretary Chapman, acting Secretary Chapman, not even a confirmed Secretary of State, acting Secretary, comes out with, quote, new guidance that says, we don't care what the U.S. Supreme Court says. We have these two other state courts, Commonwealth Court and Pennsylvania Supreme Court, stating that you have to count undated ballots, even though both of those were predicated on the Third Circuit that is now doesn't exist anymore, right, per orders of the highest court of the land. So that's that's where we're at. Again, unclear, un, like it, it's known election law, right? It's, it's a known process, signed date. And then just this week, the RNC filed uh, King's Bench motion to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court asking them to rescind their previous order and uphold their previous decisions that undated ballots should not be counted. So we're we're all over the place here. Now we have right. we have 67 county election bureaus out there, Seth. If you're right. if you're an election bureau director, what do you do? <laughs> you, you have yeah. you have the Supreme Court of the United States saying one thing, the Secretary of the Commonwealth saying another. You have more court cases out there. What's going to happen as we're just a couple of weeks away from a very critical November election? Most of the smart counties are segregating all the ballots. They're basically saying, listen, we don't know what's going to happen legally, but we are going to segregate these ballots and we'll handle them after the election when we have better guidance. Because this is the sneaky thing the Department of State is doing. And it is a known fact that the Wolf administration is trying to count as many illegal votes as they possibly can. Right. So these drop boxes, we know for a fact people are handing in more than one ballot at a time with drop boxes. First ballot's OK. You're not allowed to hand one more than one ballot. So any any ballot after that is is illegal and should not be counted per the election law. So we know for a fact the Wolf administration has been trying to count illegal ballots as much as possible. So that order, the acting secretary, even even worse than the fact that she wants them counted. She is saying, don't segregate them, commingle them all together, because even if the Supreme Court, Pennsylvania Supreme Court comes back and says, you know what, Third Circuit's gone, we agree that you can't count undated ballots, they're commingled and it's an impossibility to pull them out. So a lot of the good counties, and there's some Democrat-leaning counties that are doing this too, um, they're segregating their ballots because they know we're going to have some tight elections. And they, they want to make sure they're in a good position to make good decisions. So a lot of counties are ignoring that guidance. Remember, guidance is not a directive. The guidance is we want you to do this. We're asking you to do this. There's no force of law behind it. Well, there is force of law behind what it is you're required to do. So, Correct. Seth, if, if, you, if you were advising a voter, say, I'm a voter, I've applied for a mail-in ballot, what should I do? Read the instructions. When you get the ballot... Fill it out. Use the instructions. Fill it out. Make sure your, your bubbles are filled in. Put it in the secrecy ballot. Put the secrecy ballot in the outer envelope. Sign and date the outer envelope. And then put it in the mail or drop it off the election office. Those are your options. And make sure you are dropping only your ballot off. Do not drop anybody else's ballot off. I know it happens every day in America. You're heading somewhere. Wife says, hey, can you drop off laundry? Can you drop this off? It is illegal in Pennsylvania to hand in more than one ballot. You can't go to in-person voting and, you know, listen, uh, my wife's busy. I'm going to go vote for her, right? Can't do it. Same principles apply. So make sure you do all those things. 
and your vote will be counted. If you have a mail-in ballot and you don't want to vote mail-in, you want to go in person, take your ballot and the envelope in with you. They will void those and they will allow you to vote. So voters need to be very careful. They need to follow all the instructions to comply right. with the letter of the law. Seth, as we look at this and, and this confusion, I know your your committee, you've been chairman of the House State Government Committee for the last couple of years. You tried to implement a, a number of reforms to clear up a lot of these issues. The governor, of course, vetoed them. Here's something that I found interesting. Here at the Lincoln Institute, we do a business climate survey twice a year. And we survey the owners and chief executive officers of businesses around the state. And this year, we put on that survey a question asking business owners and CEOs. Now, these are not right-wing fanatics out there. These are Mm -hmm. businesses and CEOs, whether or not they felt that this election coming up would be conducted in a fair and above-board manner, 83% said they were concerned, 45% very concerned about the integrity of the election coming up. How do you react to something like that? I'm not surprised because of stuff like this. You know, you still have unregulated drop boxes, which a lot of people are confused about. That wasn't created by the General Assembly and laws. That was They were created by executive fiat and given the stamp approval by the left-leaning Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So th- that was... That was not the General Assembly. So you have that whole issue going on with those unchecked, unsecure methods of voting, right? On top of that, you have the direct manipulation by the Wolf administration to circumvent the U.S. Supreme Court. By the way, like thinking back the last time the executive branch ignored a U.S. state, executive branch ignored the U.S. Supreme Court, like you're going back to Governor George Wallace blocking African-Americans from attending the University of Alabama in history. Like, that's the kind of stuff that happens when people ignore the U.S. Supreme Court. So I don't know. I, well, I do know what they're thinking, right? They want to make sure that Democrats win elections, so they want to ignore and make up the laws as they go. And that's why I think there's a lot of frustration. You know, we have laws in place, and you have to follow the law. Our entire governmental system is predicated on that. And it's very frustrating to see an executive branch ignore the rule of law and basically have it rubber stamped by a very partisan Supreme Court in Pennsylvania. Well, the end result of all of that is chaos and mistrust. We can only hope that we can get through the upcoming November election with a minimum of that. It's not looking very likely, though. We have been talking with Seth Grove. Uh, Representative Grove is from York County. He is chairman of the House State Government Committee. Seth, if we have listeners who would like to get in touch with you, do you have a website where folks can go to? repgrove.com. My Twitter handle is at repgrove, and I have a great podcast, Grove Unleashed. State Representative Seth Grove. Seth, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Loman. Appreciate it. Saudi Arabia has slashed oil production, leading to an increase in oil prices and ultimately higher prices at your local gas station. Anel Sheline is a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute, and is an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She joins us now to discuss the impact. And now, welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. And now, Saudi Arabia, obviously a major world exporter of oil and part of OPEC Plus, the oil exporting countries, they've decided to cut back on production. Tell us a bit about their decision and what impact that's going to have on the global marketplace. 
Yeah, so this was a decision that the members of OPEC Plus came to to cut daily production of oil by 2 million barrels per day. So it's important to keep in mind this was not only the Saudis, but the Saudis are, are really one of the only countries in the world that is actually capable of doing that, of sort of ramping up or scaling back production. And part of the reason they're able to do that is because the Saudi government controls Saudi Arabia's production of oil, whereas in the United States, for example, these are these are private oil companies that are beholden to shareholders. And so they can't say, well, we're going to scale back production because that would eat into profits and shareholders wouldn't be happy. So for many countries, it's not, it's, it's either about shareholder value or just that they lack sort of the production capacity. So although as I, I say all this just to explain that while it is an OPEC plus decision, it is really specifically up to the Saudis and 2 million barrels per day is, is essentially the, the upper limit of their scale of what they can sort of ramp up to or scale back from. So this is part of why we've seen such anger directed at the Saudis coming out of Congress, even you know coming from Biden, who, as we know, had traveled to Saudi Arabia in July to try to address oil prices. Although at the time he he and his team said it wasn't about oil, it was fairly clear that it was heading you know looking down a few months at that time towards the midterms, wanting to address the pain Americans were feeling at the pump at a time when. Inflation continues to rise then and now, and so the under the informal understanding that Biden and his team had reached with Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi government was a small production increase. And so then suddenly, when this announcement came out that production was going to be cut by essentially the maximum amount it can be cut, that was really a slap in the face to the Biden administration, which which had made an effort to kind of bury the hatchet and get over the past kind of statements Biden had made, calling MBS a pariah, for example, following his brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and as well as his ongoing um, brutal war against the very impoverished country of Yemen. And what sort of impact, Anel, is this going to have on the average American? We have seen gas prices really skyrocket more than double under the first year and a half of the Biden administration. They came down a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit in recent months. Are we now to expect a resurgence of prices at the pump? What's interesting is is even before the production cuts themselves go into effect, we're likely to see those prices go up just just knowing that they're coming. The price of gasoline, the price of oil is subject to so many different factors, and one of them is just kind of perceptions. And so knowing that the production cuts are coming is going to drive up prices even before the supply decreases. So yes. It is, it is very likely Americans will be facing higher prices at the pump, higher prices to, to heat their homes as we, as we head towards winter. And, of course, all of this is happening in the weeks leading up to the midterm elections, which are actually underway in many states with early voting. Is it likely there's going to be a political impact to this as well? Yes, yes, very likely. We do know that the, you know, the price of gasoline at the pump is certainly something that Americans Psychologically, it's hard to stand there and watch your dollar not go as far as you're trying to fill up your car so you can you know, carry out your necessary daily life activities. And yes, so this is, again, why Biden had decided to sort of swallow his pride and against his better judgment, he went hat in hand, Jeddah, and met with Mohammed bin Salman in July with the hope that this would be helpful for his party and trying to bring 
the cost of energy down prior to the midterms. And yet now, the fact that we are seeing the this announcement now, some, I mean, critics have argued this could constitute election interference, that we know that Mohammed bin Salman was a huge fan of President Trump, remains, remains a big fan. You know, the Saudi government gave Jared Kushner billions of dollars for his latest venture. And so we know that MBS would love to have Trump back in the White House. He hasn't been a fan of Biden. He didn't like that Biden criticized him for, uh, the again, the horrific murder that he ordered, as well as his, his many other poor, poor decisions that he's made. And so this is just one step closer. If the Republicans gain control of, of Congress, that will make Biden uh, a lame duck president and would make it that much more likely that Trump would feel perhaps he could win in the upcoming presidential election. And that is what MBS would like to see. He'd like to get his guy back in the White House. We have been talking with Anel Sheline. She is a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Anel, tell us a little bit about the Quincy Institute. Also, where can we find you on the web? The Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft is a think tank in Washington, D.C. Our main mission is to try to rethink U.S. foreign policy such that we rely less heavily on our military and instead try to prioritize trade and diplomacy and, and other means of engaging with the rest of the world. The Quincy Institute you can find online at quincyinst.org. So Q-U-I-N-C-Y-I-N-S-T dot org. Once again, Anel Sheline of the Quincy Institute. Anel, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Speaking of high oil and gas prices, there is a relatively simple solution to the problem – as Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania explains on this Lincoln Radio Journal commentary. Americans for Prosperity has hosted 148 events across 31 states since April 6th when we launched our True Cost of Washington tour. This grassroots initiative was designed to meet Americans where they are, whether that be at the gas station or the grocery store, and provide them with the truth behind rising costs while offering real solutions to make everyday life more affordable. These events have largely taken place at independently owned gas stations and grocery stores, where for a two-hour window of time, we've either dropped the price of gas to $2.38 a gallon, which was the price it was the day President Biden assumed office, or we've distributed $100.85.86 gift cards representing the increased average weekly household cost for inflation. From Allegheny to Westmoreland to Bedford to Bucks counties, we've seen people arrive to our events hours in advance for the $20 to $30 in savings they might realize filling up their tank. Indeed, the average American household will spend $1,433 more on gas just this year. It wasn't difficult to identify some of the many reasons we've seen gas and energy prices soar since the advent of the Biden administration. 
To name just a few, we can first start with the fact that the administration made it exceedingly difficult to get oil and gas leases in the Gulf and in Alaska. Second, an ever-growing blow to federal regulations has caused the maintenance of refineries to reach new degrees of difficulty. When considering the costs and barriers associated with building new refineries, the burden becomes exponentially greater. When coupled with factors like the instinct to treat the symptom rather than the problem by tapping into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and the recent decision by OPEC to reject our request to increase production, the administration continues to dodge actionable measures that would alleviate our pain at the pump for the long term. In response to OPEC's plan to cut 2 million barrels of oil production per day, AFP issued the following statement. The lengths this administration continues to go to to avoid expanding American energy production is stunning. A little more than a month ago, the White House was holding press conferences, taking credit for falling gas prices, and now they go hat in hand to OPEC to beg them not to cut production, and they were denied. This is what happens when energy policy is driven by short-term politics rather than long-term energy and economic security. What could possibly justify choosing to be more reliant on OPEC than American workers and innovators in our energy industry? The vast majority of Americans, Democrat and Republican, support unleashing our own domestic energy resources. Yet this administration refuses to budge. The White House is always ready to take a victory lap, but rarely ready to take responsibility. This embarrassment should be a wake-up call to stop catering to the far left and start listening to the millions of Americans calling for a common-sense, all-of-the-above energy policy so we don't have to panic when other countries cut production. Instead, it looks like President Biden is going to tap into our strategic reserve once again, weakening our ability to respond in an actual crisis in hopes it will cover up policy failures just a few weeks before an election. We connected with folks who attended our seven price drop events as they pump their gas, relaying the actions that the federal government could immediately take to unleash energy abundance and begin driving costs down. First, they could prioritize reforms to reduce energy burdens. Second, they could remove barriers to energy innovation, infrastructure, and environmental progress. And third, we could reject the Paris Climate Agreement. We know that energy is present in everything we do in our daily lives and that abundant, affordable, and reliable energy is the key driver of both our prosperity and security. Visit www.truecostofwashington.com. I'm Ashley Klingensmith, State Director with Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania. Find us on Facebook by searching at PAAFP and on Twitter by searching at AFP Pennsylvania. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 27 years, Lincoln Radio Journal 
has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth, including WTYMAM in Catanning, WFYLAM in Jeffersonville, along with WJUNAM in Mexico, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, and the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal, plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.